Hello and welcome to the One Football Podcast. Well, interestingly enough, in this documentary, he reveals that he was the first to go for a piss on the moon. Which is better. What? Really. Is this where, where, in his suit? Yeah, well, they've obviously... Out on the... didn't, no, no, he didn't get it out. And... Oh, because it's not going to... Tackle out in space. That's because that's <laughs> going to float away. But how do you... Yeah. Oh, in his, in his they've got bag. like They've got built-in suit. I guess they've got built-in bags into the suits. Yeah, like... <clears throat> okay, here to talk football is me, Ian McCourt, along with Dan Burke from the One Football Newsroom. Hello. And if you think my return is special, then you're really going to think this return is special. It's Matt Herman from Talking Football. Ta da da. <laughs> and pod regular, and I'm getting a bit bored of him. It's Ollie Moody from Deutsche Welle. Getting bored of the sound of my own voice, to be honest with you, Ian. Yeah. Hello. All the all these podcasts. Uh, before we get cracking on the football talk, let's have some iTunes talk. Wherever you are in the world, please go to your local iTunes store. Please give us a rating and please leave a comment to let us know what you think of the podcast. It would, as ever, be most most appreciated. Now, Dan, good that we have you here because one of the more intriguing stories of this season, not just in England, but across the football world, has been Pep Guardiola and Manchester City. I mean, it looks at this stage that they'll make the Champions League places, which you would expect is the bare minimum for a manager of of his stature and what he was going to bring to the club. So let's start with a bit of a review of this season. What's he got right and what has he got wrong? Hmm. It's a complicated question, really, because as you say, you know, we're probably going to f- qualify for the Champions League now. Um, obviously, not winning uh, a trophy at this point. Uh, whoever your manager is at City nowadays is considered a, a bit of a failure, and, and not winning the league is considered a bit of a failure. And I think I was one of those people who perhaps naively thought that Pep would just come in and take the league by storm and win the league in his first season and get us playing wonderful football straight from the off, which was what happened, really. You know, they, they started the season really, really well um, and then tailed off towards the middle. Um, in terms of things that he's got right, I mean, I've said it on the podcast before and I stand by it. I think um, when they're in full flow, I think City are the best team to watch in the Premier League, the most exciting team to watch. Um, they play the best football. Um, and we've certainly seen him in recent weeks a little bit more of that. Um, it seems like he's got his, his, his attacking side of things really nailed down, um, particularly the game uh, when they beat Crystal Palace 5-0 a couple of weeks ago. Um, they were exceptionally good that day. Things that he's got wrong... Um, <laughs> Where to start, really? I mean, defensively, they've been really, really poor all season. And one of the things that I I sort of expected from a Pep Guardiola team was that he'd have an organised defence. Obviously, he has this style of play, which is, as I say, beautiful to watch when it all comes off, but it feels a little bit flimsy at times. Um, I've lost count of the amount of times that City conceded a goal from their opponent's first or only shot on goal of the game. It just seems like City have 10 chances, the opponent only needs one, and they would score a goal. So that's definitely something they need to work on over the summer. I don't know, maybe if it's a personnel issue as well. Um, they're going to try and strengthen the, the the weak areas in the squad over the summer um, and throw a lot of money, a lot more money at the problem. But yeah, overall, I would say it's been a, an unsatisfactory season. But I wouldn't I wouldn't go too hard on him. I'd probably give him a six out of ten for the season, um, given that it feels like although we haven't moved forward very much. He has at least got City pointing in the, the right direction and hopefully next season they can really kick on. Well, Pellegrini ended with a Champions League spot and a trophy, which would suggest you've actually gone backwards. <laughs> Maybe so, yeah. I mean, like I say, it's, it's complicated because 
they seemed a bit of a directionless club under Pellegrini. It seemed like it, it reached the end of its lifespan where it feels like they're at the beginning of something with Guardiola now. And he, he has a three-year contract. I hope to God that he stays longer than those three years because it's going to take longer than that. It's, a, it's been a wasted season, really, but it, I think it was necessary mm-hmm. just to get them to this point. I think another reason I would say that is perhaps a slightly unfair comparison with Pellegrini's last season is that um, a lot of the big clubs have really upped their game this season. Even if they're, you know, still ending the, the season trophyless or whatever, um, I think all of the top six, if they win their final game, will end with more points than they had last season. Some of those teams actually by quite a lot as well. Um, if you look at, I mean, Tottenham, for example, who should have finished second and actually really should have won the league last season, they've got thirteen points more in this campaign. Liverpool sixteen, City actually twelve more than. If, this is if they win the last game of the season, of course. Even Arsenal, who even Arsenal. have been in crisis at times this season. Um, if they win the last game, we'll end up four points with four points more than they had last season. So it's perhaps a little bit unfair on on Guardiola to say uh, the club hasn't progressed or even that the club has regressed when actually a large part of the reason they're not done better is that everybody seems to be doing better. Yeah, this city side would have won the league at a canter last year, um, playing the same way that they are. Um, and I think the real bright spot for Guardiola is that, you know, he took over Barcelona when Barcelona were you know, at a very high level, basically on uh, on a par with Real Madrid and dominating that league. Bayern, we know what Bayern are in the Bundesliga. They are in a dominant position. And, you know, City were a very good team that he took over, but they weren't a dominant team in the Premier League. And it's going to take some time for him to get there, if indeed he ever does. I mean, that's, that's a league that has a lot of very big clubs and a lot of clubs that basically can hand their managers, sporting directors, whoever's in charge, a blank check. So, you know, it's less a matter for, for a team like City of can you afford this player so much as will this player choose to go to Real Madrid instead. I mean, if he gets the right conversation going with some some key players who could strengthen the squad, he could get that done very quickly. Let's talk transfers in a second. I have a question for you, though. Is there a sense that some of the players are not quite smart enough to play Guardiola's uh, formation. Mm, absolutely, yeah. I mean, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink, can't you? And there's been so many times this season when um, I think Guardiola set his team up quite <laughs> Who's well. Who's the old nag? <laughs> <laughs> that would be, uh, I don't know, Gail Cliche, probably. That's Silva, isn't been drinking very much from that well this season. David Silva, excellent. Yeah. yeah, he's been superb. Yeah, he's, a, he's an amazing player. Um, yeah, I think... It's just a, an element. I mean, like I said, the, the, the amount of times that City have dominated games and come away with with nothing, it, it was so frustrating. And I think there was a, an element of, of misfortune at times as well. Um, I think Kevin De Bruyne hit the, hit the woodwork eleven times in the Premier League alone last season, which which tells you something. And um, I think they had problems refereeing decisions not going their way at times. Big ones. No, it's true. Like I'm not saying that it's disproportionately, um, it, it, you know, not in City's favour, but. There were a couple of big ones that I can think of uh, when they played Chelsea in December at the Etihad. Um, David Luiz should have been sent off in that game, and that kind of changed the course of the game. Yeah, going um, a miss in exactly, that game yeah, as well. Yeah. It was one of the turning points of the season. Oh, that is true. They yeah. played Spurs in January or February, and uh, Kyle Walker should have been sent off for fouling Raheem Sterling. So there was, yeah, there, there were points where you just thought that City weren't quite getting the rub of the green. Right. Um, Tony Pulis was talking the other day and he reckons Guardiola had been surprised by what he called the intensity of the Premier mm. League. You think that's the case? A little bit, yeah. I mean, we've both, we've both 
tried to read those Marty Perrineau books <laughs> and I, I'm still, I've failed. I gave up. I don't know. Have you given up? Uh, I've given up on the second one now. You gave I think. up. Yeah, Did you make yeah. your way through the first one? Just about, yeah. It took oh, a long time. Play. Yeah. But literally his whole life was geared towards knowing absolutely everything. It just seems to me that he wouldn't have been surprised by that, but I don't know. I don't know if he was necessarily <laughs> surprised by it. I just think it, it's the league, like like Matt was saying, it's it's a difficult league. And um, Guardiola mentioned things like set pieces so much and second balls, which is like a sort of Sunday league attitude towards the game. But that kind of is the way the Premier League is. It's it's a lot more physical than La Liga and the Bundesliga, I think. And um, it, perhaps that has been a little bit of a shot to the system. And he has this this ideal of football that he, he won't negotiate. He's going to play this way, win or lose, for the whole time he's at City and, and wherever he goes afterwards. And maybe he needs to adapt it just a little bit to the league, I would have thought. I think the, the tactics he, sorry, I think the tactics he sort of set up with from the start of the season um, they would betray perhaps a slight uh, sort of element surprise in terms of the intensity. You know, he set up with Claudio Bravo playing out from the very back and then John Stones in front of him. And I think there have been quite a few times where they've been caught out trying to play the ball out from mm. the very back um, when it's not yeah when it's not the best thing for them to do in that situation so perhaps there's just an element of it but yeah I mean Guardiola is one of these guys who is obsessed with knowing every little detail about his opponents and things like that so it'd be a surprise if it was a major factor in City season those Marty Perrineau books actually turned me off Guardiola <laughs> he, he, he said something this week actually which was kind of weird and interesting at the same time he said that um, Guardiola knows that his team aren't going to be playing the way that he wants them to until March 2018 I don't know why they've put that specific period of time on it March 2018 was it said this yeah God, that's odd. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, it's really odd. <laughs> anyway, so we we mentioned we mentioned he needs to improve this squad mm-hmm. over this summer. Zabalet is gone, and you're don't remind me. He's genuinely <laughs> bereaved about this. Got that, that Zabaleta is gone. Sorry, that's my fault. The whole uh, the whole stadium seems pretty upset that he was leaving during the last game. Yeah, it's it's really weird. I mean, he's been at the club for nine years, and we don't you know we don't have that many uh, in recent history mm-hmm. legends, for want of a better word. Is he, he the longest serving is, player in the squad? Uh, I think him and company arrived right. at the same time, so uh, company will be now. Um, Joe Hart was there before them as well, but obviously he's not really part of the squad anymore. Um, so Zabalet is gone. Martin Di Michaelis has retired, so he won't be able to come back and help you. Um, it, it's going to be defence where he focuses on this summer? I think they need to bring in um, strength in, in all, all areas. The pitch really definitely the fullbacks is a, 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 an area of the, the team that has been neglected for such a long time now. Um, they need to sign some real quality in that position, um, especially the way Guardiola wants to play. It needs good fullbacks and they, they just haven't had that for the past couple of years. Um, I, I think you probably need to bring in a central defender, maybe a goalkeeper, maybe a central midfielder, maybe a striker. So I hope uh, Sheikh Mansour's got his... Uh, his check writing pen ready because he's going to be using it this summer. I, I hope he has a specific pen to write checks with. <laughs> I'm sure he does. That's yeah. what I would like to know. Okay, well, in England, there may be nothing to play for this weekend, but there is still plenty going on set of the border in the Bundesliga. Oli, for those unfamiliar with the situation, can you maybe, can you set it out for them? Because it looks pretty complicated. Sure. So you've got the, the relegation playoff in the Bundesliga where the team that finishes third bottom and 16th place uh, plays against the team that finishes third in the second division in uh, two legs and the winner over two legs either remains or gets into the Bundesliga. 
this is only something that's been around since 2009, so it's not like a well, it's relatively historic new. German tradition. No, it's well, they had it and then they get rid of it. And yeah, they yeah, back. exactly. A bit, bit, bit weird. Yeah. Um, but So basically the situation going into the last weekend is that Hamburg are in 16th at the moment, and this has been a pretty uh, sort of regular spot for them in recent years. They've had to come through a couple of uh, relegation playoffs to actually keep this run of being the only club to be in every Bundesliga season since its inception. Uh, going, um, they've got that clock up in the stadium that shows how long they've been in the Bundesliga for, which just about every other Bundesliga fan wants to see set back to zero. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Hamburg are actually playing against Wolfsburg, who are the team right above them in the table. So it's a real like kind of shootout for who has to play in that. Um, although there is another team that's involved. Basically, um, Augsburg are only just ahead of them, and they're away to Hoffenheim. So the situation kind of is if Hamburg beat Wolfsburg. And Hoffenheim beat Augsburg by two goals more than Hamburg won by, then Augsburg are in the relegation playoff. So it is a bit complicated, but basically there's one of those three teams is going to be playing probably Eintracht Braunschweig in the playoff. Braunschweig were in the, the Bundesliga a couple of seasons back. and um, Yeah, it's, it's going to be a very nerve-wracking, intense kind of uh, experience for them. But the, the kind of issue that I have with this relegation playoff idea since it was brought back in is that... Um, it seems to favour the top division side, or it doesn't seem to have given the second division side as much of a chance as perhaps you would think. It's not like a 50-50. Well, you've only had two teams from the second division actually get promoted through the relegation playoff since 2009. Um, And the last team was Dusseldorf back in 2012. So, you know, the last, what is that, four years, it's been the, the first division side staying in the top division last season. It was Frankfurt. Um, so I, I'm sort of critical of it because although it's a bit more excitement at the end of the season, I don't think you actually get as much kind of turnover in terms of teams in the Bundesliga as you otherwise would. And I think it actually creates less incentive for uh, for teams in the second division. And it rewards mediocrity in the top division too because you can be poor all season and then get out of jail. Well, not even mediocrity. I mean, these these are bad teams. If, you're, if you finish in 16th place, you you deserve to get spanked, not to like... Just be sent to the corner for five minutes, and then be like, "Here's some candy." <laughs> so you're not a fan of this of this the way they do it in the Bundesliga. You'd rather no. see three teams go straight down. I would, I would, and I'm not sure if it has to be done, you know, necessarily in the way. Say for the example, I mean, I was watching, uh, you know, uh, Sheffield uh, Wednesday and Huddersfield last night, and that, that's a nice format. It has a sort of um, randomness that is is. Uh, quite appealing i think um in that that a sixth place team has just as much chance as a third place team which is also unfair but somehow less unfair than a team that's really been bad all season in the case of hamburg or wolfsburg in this year if you finish that low you should just go so what's going to happen Wait, that rhymed th- oh my god <laughs> <laughs> so what's going to happen this weekend then matt I want, your, I want you to look into, put on your little rag and look into your crystal ball and tell us what's going to happen. My little rag. Um, I guess, I guess, I guess, I guess Hamburg's probably going to win. They, Hamburg's at home. They um, had plenty of chances to actually get a better result in that Schalke match last weekend. They just didn't finish them. Um, Wolfsburg, I think, have looked more useless uh, in recent weeks than Hamburg have, which is really a, a, a tough thing to achieve. But... I, I reckon Hamburg will win that game or, well, it, it, 
what am I doing picking Hamburg? And it, now it's they have a, that knack, though, don't they, of getting themselves out of trouble right at the last moment. But they usually end up in the relegation They do usually playoff. end up in the relegation playoff. Was it twice in the last three years? Uh-huh. And so this would make three out of four. Yeah, it would. I've got a question for both of you German football experts. Yes. Somebody on the pod suggested a while ago, might have actually been one of, one of you two, that going down would actually be good for Hamburg. It would be like, you know, when somebody goes in for like a deep clean and kind of gets <laughs> all the kind of rubbish out of their body. What's it called? Colonic irrigation? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this would be Hamburg's colonic irrigation. Yeah, a bit like a, a colonic irrigation. What do you reckon? Uh, it, yeah, is that I, a good idea? I, Not the colonic irrigation, but the actual going down and, you know, they would have that monkey off their back, the clock would stop and they could just go on and be more of a normal club. Yeah, certainly. Um, it may well have been me who, who said it on the podcast. Um, I think that expectations at Hamburg have been unrealistically high for an incredibly long time. Um, just last summer, you had their their benefactor um, giving them a lot more money on the basis that they didn't have to give it back if they got into Europe. And as we can see now, Europe is totally out of the question. It, mm. And it was from pretty much the very start of the season. I mean, they fired Bruno Labbadia after match day five, I think, after a defeat to Bayern. Which um, they had done the year before as well. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, this is not a club that had like um, a, a strategy in place that was actually likely to get them challenging for Europe this is a club that has a squad that looks like a, a squad that could be relegated um, there's a reason they're down in 16th and it's it's not bad luck it's you know none of Dan's excuses for Man City <laughs> it's uh, you know they, they've been bad pretty much all season apart from a brief spell of resurgence under Marcus Gisdol. Um I think if they go down they will have to reset those expectations along with the clock they will as you say, get that monkey off their back. They'll get kind of grounded again, playing against teams like Erzgebirge Aue, you know, and is it, uh, Dynamo Dresden going to be in the oh, yeah. league next Dresden's season? Yeah, yeah. Up in the second and, and, the, and the mighty Kiel. Yeah, the mighty <laughs> Kiel, absolutely. And of yeah. course, the, um, the the Hamburg derby then. They'll be playing St. Pauli again if mm, they go down. Yeah. Um, I think it would do their fans the world of good. I think it would do the, the club's top brass the world of good because... They just wouldn't be able to mess around with any of these silly notions of getting into Europe when actually what they should be doing, what they should have been doing was building on the work that Labadia had done the season before where he'd got them to a sort of solid 12th place or something like that. They should have been sort of looking to push up gradually mm -hmm. in steps. See, I'll go ahead and take the counterpoint then, Do it. Holly. Uh, no, I think uh, there's plenty of examples where this has worked, and this year is a great example. I mean, you see Hanover 96 and Final Base Stuttgart. They went down. They're going straight back up. Both Newcastle of them were United as well. What's that? Newcastle United. Exactly. Exactly. Newcastle United. Um, <clears throat> it's just a matter of what moves you make. It's a matter of who you hire as a coach. It's a matter of which players you decide to dump and which sides you, you, you decide to keep. I mean, those decisions are not necessarily always your own. Sometimes it's a financial decision. But, you know, look at a club like uh, Cologne. I mean, Cologne have been down a bunch of times in recent years. But really, the best thing for them was bringing in the right people, which is to say Peter Stöger and Jörg Schmacke, their coach and their sporting director. Somebody who basically understood that this is, you know, fans, don't get overheated. Stop talking about Europe. We are going to build slowly. And yeah, Cologne's not my favorite team to watch. I find them generally <laughs> pretty boring, but they're getting better. They're getting less boring year by year and they're getting better as well. And Hamburg, there's no reason why they have to go down to go through that process. They just have to get their head screwed on, right? But I think sometimes, I agree with you completely, it's it's more about getting the right people in. But we've seen at Hamburg in recent years this kind of carousel of 
Bundesliga coaches who haven't really succeeded elsewhere. Um, and I feel like if they go down, maybe, like I say, they'll, they'll just have to come back down to earth and appoint someone who is not um, one of the standard Bundesliga coaches who just goes from job to job. Um, but someone who maybe they promote someone from within or maybe they find someone who's done a very good job uh, in the second division level for uh, a, a number of years, you know, and maybe that helps them kind of come away from any expectations they have about what coach they're bringing in and just say, okay, let's build with someone from the ground up who will give us a strong basis, like Peter Stöger and Jörg Schmacko have done at Cologne. I mean, that was a fantastic job that they've done there and it's a perfect example. And you see this season with especially Anthony Modeste, but he's far from the only one there doing a good job. Um, that's a club that doesn't look like it's going to have any of these kind of Hamburg worries in the next few years. They look, if anything, like they're going the other way. Okay, that's enough talk about Hamburg for now. Far too much attention on them. Um, well, let's have a quick word about Yogi Love's Confederations Cup squad, because it's quite interesting. Seven uncapped players. No Manuel Neuer, of course. No Ozil, no Hummels, no Thomas Muller. Bit of a gamble, or does it really matter? It's just—it's a nice way for him to test the kids, basically. It's—it's uh, it's not a gamble at all. I mean, the Confederations Cup doesn't matter at all. Um, it's. You don't think even kind of mentality-wise, it matters at all? Nah. Not no. At all. Okay. I, I think, I think this is actually exactly the squad he should have picked. This is a squad that I think a lot of people have been waiting to see from him. I mean, Joachim Löw, at various points in his his career, now quite a long career with Germany, has been criticized with sort of sticking with the same guys a bit too much. Like a cons- he's a conservative squad pick- yeah. picker. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, he's got a lot of good players to choose from. And once he, f- he hits upon the best ones, he, he kind of wants to stick with them, which sounds like yeah. what a coach should do. But there are a lot of guys in this squad um, that have deserved a chance. I mean, especially some of the more veteran types. I mean, Sandra Wagner is a great example. Yes. Sandra Wagner. Let's talk about Sandra Wagner. Let's let's open up. We the are round. we are big Sandra Wagner fans on this podcast. Nice. Well, yeah. and it's great because Sandra Wagner is, is a veteran of that under twenty one European Champions team, which included the likes of Jerome Boateng and uh, Fabian Johnson, who now plays for the United States. Um, and Sandra Wagner was like their. They're featured striker, and he hasn't played for Germany at a senior level until now. It's going to be a great thing to see him banging in the goals of the Confederations Cup against the likes of Australia and, you know. Yeah, I think it's, <laughs> it's great with Wagner because um, his career sort of floundered after he, he got past that kind of level. He was a bit of a misfit at a variety of Bundesliga clubs. You know, he was at Bayern for a while, and it definitely didn't work out there. I remember him scoring for Hertha, and it was his first goal in about two years or something like that. And he was at Bremen as well, I think, and, and a couple of other places. It, it just wasn't working out until he went to Darmstadt last season. And he was spectacular. And he's banging them in for Hoffenheim. And now he's season. banging them in for Hoffenheim. And yeah, to do it two years in a row, I think is very important. It shows that he wasn't just a one-season wonder. It wasn't just having the team built around him. And he's going to be playing in the Champions League next season. You know, and Hoffenheim have qualified for the Champions League. Well, it's nice be- to see so many Hoffenheim players in there. Diego Deme's in there. Rudy's in there. It's lovely. It's a, it's a, it's a, um, a, a nice compliment to Julian Nagelsmann. Absolutely, yeah, and, and, and the work he's um, done Unfortunately, two of <laughs> two of the Hoffenheim players that are in that squad are not going to be Hoffenheim players next season. Ah, Sebastian Rudi and true. Nicolas Zula, and Zula in particular, I've talked about him on the podcast before. I'm a huge fan of his. I think it's, um, I think it's a good signing for Bayern, and I do think he's someone who will play a lot for Germany in the future. You know, Hummels and Boateng 
sort of edging towards the 30 mark. You never know, sort of, maybe they're going to pull alarm and retire from international football early or what have you. I think Zula is an excellent young talent and I think it's great to see people like him, not just in the squad, but actually with a good chance of being first team regulars throughout that tournament. You know, um, I'm also really excited to see Leon Goretzka because I think he's been one of few uh, sort of bright sparks for Schalke in a, mm-hmm. in a really disappointing season for them. A very dark season. For them. Yeah, I think yeah. he's got, a, I mean, he's got a great engine, but he's also a really nice creative player. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that. One last word, Matt. Yeah, I mean, uh, 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 perhaps someone odd that I brought up that uh, 2009 uh, European Championship uh, under 21 team, um, which then pushed on to graduate many of its players to the Germany's, you know, 2010 World Cup team that did so well. But the, it looks like the strategy is very similar this time. Um, Yogi Love has actually left out some players who have a fair bit of senior Germany experience from his side and is allowing them to play under 21 European Championship. Uh, guys like Serge Gnabry or Jonas Nta, um, guys who under other circumstances might have uh, expected a call up to the, the senior squad. So it could be interesting if that under 21 team really performs well um, this summer, then maybe they can form a small bit of uh, the, the World Cup squad in uh, 2018. So last week saw Chelsea crowned Premier League champions in Antonio Conte's first season in charge of the club. Here to talk about that is Dominic Fifield from The Guardian. Dominic, given the state of Chelsea post-Mourinho last season, the fans labelling the players as snakes, others player, other players doing their best to get out of the club and Antonio Conte in his first season in England, how does this title rank in relation to the rest of Chelsea's league wins? I think it's arguably one of the most impressive, um, possibly second after Mourinho's first title back in 2005 um, and, and you're right to, to, to offer that context because they were a, a shambles last season um, finished 10th the lowest, lowest placing ever under Roman Abramovich's ownership um, it wasn't a happy camp it was an imbalanced squad um, and in, in all honesty it didn't actually enjoy the most fruitful of, of summer transfer windows either um, a lot of Conte's first choice players uh, potential signings remained in Italy um, and they, they ended up buying the likes of David Luiz very late on in the window. Um, Marcus Alonso came in late as well. So, it, so for him to have conjured this kind of success from the mess that, that appeared to be at that club, say, even, even if you went back to 24th of September and that, and that 3-0 half-time deficit at Arsenal, um, for them to have recovered and, and really been streets ahead of most other teams in the in the division. I mean, he, he, as well as Spurs have played, Chelsea are going to win this league by some distance, and and, and I think that that is purely down to the the brilliance um, of of Antonio Conte and the, and the incredible impact he's had at the club. That's that's one of the interesting arguments that a lot of people have been putting forward this season is that Spurs despite not winning the league are actually the best team in the league. Is that a, a sentiment that you would subscribe to? I think when Tottenham um, are at their best um, and they, they they're playing their d- the most dynamic style, then then they are probably what they, they may well be the best team in the division. But I, I do think they, I think possibly that the, the youth of that team still counts against them a bit. They, they dropped a lot of points at the beginning of the season while while Chelsea were going on a thirteen match winning streak. Um, Spurs were drawing a lot of games, and that's ultimately where the title was lost for Tottenham. 
Um, Chelsea a bit more, a bit bit cannier, possibly a bit more streetwise. Uh, they have got players in in that team who are used to winning titles for all their failings last season. Um, and you can look at the likes of David Luiz as well, who who in France just won about everything going. Um, so he's not as if he hasn't. He's not used to winning domestic titles. Mangala um, Kante, obviously, last season we saw at Leicester City the impact that he can make. So they, they've got they've got natural born winners in that in that Chelsea team. People who are uh, used to claiming trophies, and I think that 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 experience ultimately counted in their favour. That that's something that Tottenham hope to develop if they can keep that team together um, over the next few years. But I do think they they've got their own issues to address this summer in terms of wage caps and and in competing and uh, amongst the elite level in terms of the finances. Uh, but but Chelsea. This is what Chelsea do. This is what Chelsea have done consistently under the under Abramovich's ownership. They 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 have this. They always have this core of players um, that are that are used used to winning trophies. And Conte has made no bones of the fact that he feels this is still a team in transition, um, which which makes so the achievement of of claiming the Premier League even more remarkable, really. Um, and I suspect they'll be buying in more players, more seasoned winners ne- over the summer as well, and, and we'll see them even stronger next time around. Well, that that is, that is quite interesting. Where do you expect him to strengthen then? I would I would actually think that Conte will bring in a, an entirely new spine of the team, which which seems a bit ruthless. But I, what he wants ultimately to compete in the Champions League next season is, is, is two top quality players in every position and and when he when he looks at top quality he's he means seasoned campaigners as opposed to um promising players from the from the academy so i think you'll see them by a, another another left-sided center half um most likely virgil van dijk um to compete with gary cahill on that side and, and cahill you know has been captain for most of this season and yet might not necessarily be first choice next time i think you'll see them buying a, a a strong midfielder to compete with uh, Nemanja Matic and, and alongside N'Golo Kante, probably Timio Bakayoko at Monaco. Um, and obviously the, the striker issue will be addressed. That They have a strong interest in Alexis Sanchez, although I, I doubt that Arsenal would sanction a sale to Chelsea. Um, but Romelu Lukaku is, is a very, very much a viable option and they, they would have the money to, to spend on, on Lukaku, um, particularly if... As we suspect, Diego Costa does move on um, to China or, or, or an elite European club. Um, I, but then you're looking at you, you, you brought in a, a strong midfielder, a centre half, and a striker there, possibly another striker on top of that. I suspect they'll bring in further wing backs as well, and, and I mean that's 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 pretty impressive. If they let Begovic go, they'll bring in another an experienced goalkeeper as well. So that's a that's a lavish outlay. We're talking over two hundred million pounds probably in the summer um, to, to capitalise on uh, on the title winning success. And is that going to be fueled by the money from selling Eden Hazard? No. No, I don't think it will be. I think I think if, if there is a high-profile departure from Chelsea this summer, it will be Diego Costa. Um, I, I really don't think Hazard will be leaving this summer. Uh, the Real Madrid issue will not go away. It's something that he, I think ultimately he would like to, to do in his career. And he does have this... Um, respect and admiration for Zinedine Zidane but I think it would send out the wrong message for Chelsea to to part with him this summer um, it wouldn't be the type of thing you want to do when you're going back into the Champions League and you're actually hoping to compete into the latter stages of the Champions League um, and I think they will resist that in fact 
to be honest, far more likely is that Hazard joins Antonio Conte in signing a new contract at Stamford Bridge um, in the next month or so. Um, and uh, on, on vastly improved terms, he's already on pretty impressive money, but I think you'll see him getting a wage in the region of £300,000 a week just to remain at Chelsea. Uh, going back to Costa for a second, I think it's one of the more interesting aspects of Conte's uh, reign this season is his ability to harness Costa and you know keep him quiet and keep him happy. Is that maybe his greatest achievement with Chelsea this season within that squad? I think if you if you if we go post September when he made the tactical switch to three four three in in, in um, late September after the Arsenal defeat, it was pretty plain sailing from that that moment on. But the one issue that threatened to derail Chelsea was mid-January when the Chinese interest in Costa first surfaced um, and Costa was agitating for a move. He was unsettled and he has this capability of being disruptive. Um, he's a bit of a man-child. He's a, he's, we, we, we witnessed it a bit last week in the, in the post-match celebrations at the Hawthorns um, when he was trying to remove Antonio Conte from, from his post-match media duties um, and was threatening to sort of let off a fire extinguisher at the media huddle. He is, he's difficult to contain and that was Con- Conte having to shout him down and say stop, stop and the, the media officer doing the same and even John Terry and David Luiz seeing that this was going only one way and eventually reining Costa in. And look, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that, that, uh, that Costa is like that every day but I think he is high maintenance um, and in January, when things were going so well, he was uh, threatening to tip the balance and, and, and rock the boat, basically, in, in, in the middle of the season, the middle of the good spell. Um, and Conte used that situation to demonstrate his own strengths. He just wouldn't put up with it, uh, made his... Um, made his thoughts very clear to Diego Costa and to Chelsea's hierarchy um, in mid-season, and Costa, to his credit, knuckled down um, and got on with it. He wasn't. His form hasn't been outstanding over the second half of the season. As is often the case with Diego Costa, he plays for half a season and then the other half is, is not quite so impressive. But he has been still key. He's still been bullying defenders. He's still been leading the line in a selfless way out on the pitch. And he's still been integral to everything that Chelsea have achieved this season. Um, and for Conte to have got that kind of uh, reaction from him when he was clearly unsettled mid-season demonstrates um, quite quite cutely, really, how, how Conte works. He gets everybody united, everybody working in the same direction. Um, and he, he did use that. He, it was a show of strength, and, it, and he came out the other side, and that is one of his many triumphs this season, and probably one of the most significant ones over the second half of the season. Uh, one last question before we let you go, Dominic. Um, Terry hinted after the game on Monday that it might be his last. What's your feeling on this? Is that it for him? Uh, I think it very much depends on um, on the offers that come in. I would be surprised if Terry walked away from playing um, after the FA Cup final. I would be very surprised. I think Conte was quite surprised to hear that Terry had, had mooted that publicly on, on a Sky Television interview post-match after the Watford game. Um, Conte was Conte has stressed consistently that he's actually he's actually enjoyed working with Terry and he feels that Terry's he's actually helped him um, behind the scenes on the training ground in the dressing room um, 
And although it is the time for him to move on in terms of he, he's not going to get into this Chelsea team, I think even his performance against Watford, albeit he was ring rusty, having not played very much, he, he clearly isn't the player he once was. He's 36. I mean, it's, we shouldn't expect him to be. Um, but I, I do think there's a, there's a certain disappointment within Conte uh, and and the management there that, that, that Terry is walking away. But they've, they've allowed him to go on the belief that he is going to go and play somewhere else and he's going to get regular first-team football elsewhere. So if if, if Terry suddenly hangs up his boots altogether, um, I think that would come as a bit of a shock to to Chelsea and and, and would be disappointing. I, I suspect that there will be interest from um, Premier League clubs lower down the scale, lower down the hierarchy um, as as the transfer window opens and, and, and they, they assess... Uh, the budgets for next season. Um, I think Terry may have been a bit surprised that there isn't the same interest in his services from, say, clubs in China, for example. I don't think defenders are glamorous enough um, for the, the the more lucrative deals for foreign players uh, in a in a Chinese league that is revamping how it treats foreign players and the number that they can have at each each club. Um, I don't think I think the same probably applies for Major League Soccer as well. Um, Defenders aren't really where it's at. Uh, they want they want their their glamorous foreign signings to be scoring goals at the other end of the pitch. Um, so that would basically leave maybe a club in the Gulf, um, uh, possibly, um, or a Premier League club lower down the scale that might want to tap into his wealth of experience uh, more than anything. But whether they whether the deals on offer are going to be good enough for John Terry uh, remains to be seen. I think I think it might be something that happens late. He may go away on his holiday post celebrations after the FA Cup final, and then reassess it come the end of June. Um, but I suspect there may be one or two that might have a sniff and offer him a pay pay as he play deal or something like that. I'm looking at possibly the likes of. I don't know, Crystal Palace possibly. Um, Bournemouth I'm not so sure about now that it would be convenient for him. Um, and maybe we'll see who gets promoted as well from from the Championship. If Reading went up, um, possibly they might look at, at something there as well. But it's that, that kind of level. And it's then whether Terry can adjust. We saw with Rio Ferdinand going to QPR a few years back. It didn't really work out, albeit there were other issues affecting Rio at the time. Um, it'll be interesting to see whether Terry can make the same kind of impact with lesser players around him. That was Dominic Fifield from The Guardian with some really interesting points there. 300,000 for Eden Hazard. Casual. 300,000. Yeah, big, isn't it? But I mean, you can't even spend that in a week. No, he'd find a way, I'm sure. But Good yeah, that's incredible money, but he's probably is worth it, to be fair. He's been... Apart from that sort of spell under Mourinho where everyone was terrible, yeah, uh, he's been exceptional. I constantly have to do mental arithmetic to have any understanding of weekly wages. They oh, I've given up. To me. I've given up. <laughs> I just have to be like, times 52, that's... <laughs> yeah. Because I think of in, in years, you know. It's, yeah, mind-blowing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Man City need defensive reinforcements. John Terry needs a new club. I think that ship has sailed a, lot, a couple of years ago, unfortunately. Okay. I, I, I wouldn't want uh, John Terry anywhere near my club, to be perfectly honest with you. Is that a footballing well, they opinion? No, or, uh, but Frank La- worked well for Frank Lampard. Yeah, Lampard was all right, though, wasn't he? They both, the both clubs wear blue. It seems like a natural yeah. fit for me. 
Okay, that's all we have time for today. My thanks to Dan, Matt, Ollie, Dominic and our producer, Damien. Remember, wherever you are in the world, please go to your local iTunes store. Please give us that rating and please leave a comment to let us know what you think of the podcast. Thanks for that and thanks for listening. <laughs>